Let me pray now. Father, thank you for this time that we have to look at your word together. Please would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Point us to Jesus to see what it means to trust him and especially to see what it means to forgive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what does it take to forgive? That's the question that we're confronted with in this next episode of Joseph's life in the book of Genesis. Remember, there's a lot of in Joseph's life that he could justifiably feel wounded by. He's had these dreams as a teenager about his family bowing down to him. And his response to that, if you remember back in chapter 37, if you hear, is quite teenagerish, wasn't it? You know, he wasn't all that wise. He, he threw his weight around. He teased his brothers. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that that's what all teenagers are like. But what happened to him next was out of all proportion compared to that, however. Thrown into a pit by his own brothers, sold into slavery. There was enough grief and abuse there to be going on with. But then once again, he tries to do the right thing in the household of Potiphar and he ends up mistreated and thrown innocently into prison. And a full 13 years later, finally, after the beginning of his, um, of his dreams, 13 years later, finally he is released from prison and finds himself rising up the ranks again very quickly in Pharaoh's court. Nearly half his life so far has been lost to prison and injustice, all as a result of his brother's ill treatment of him. So how's he going to feel towards these brothers? That's the question. And Joseph, of course, is just one example of what it looks like to struggle with forgiveness, which all human beings do at different points in our lives. There are some particularly famous examples, of course. There are hard cases where forgiveness seems especially tough. So uh, victims of the Holocaust were forced to think this through. Uh, one survivor, Simon Wiesenthal, talked of how while he was still a, a concentration camp inmate, in fact, still actually during the war, he'd found himself, uh, through various circumstances, at the bedside of a dying Nazi soldier. And this soldier had begged him, as a Jew, to forgive him for what he had knowingly done to other Jewish people. And Wiesenthal simply got up and left the hospital without saying a word, and the soldier soon died. And in the many years that followed, Wiesenthal then struggled with what he should have done. Was he right to walk away? Should he have forgiven the man when he was asked? Was it his place to forgive? And as he considered his silence on that day, he wrote in, in, in a book where he collected together many people's different experiences of these issues around forgiveness in these circumstances. He wrote this. He wrote, the crux of the matter is the question of forgiveness. Now, many of us will have struggled with this, perhaps not in the context of such horrific crimes as the Holocaust. But nevertheless, we often struggle with that question of what forgiveness looks like in real-life situations where the pain is real for us. On the one hand, can I really just forget that this thing has happened, we think, even while its consequences continue in my life, perhaps? On the other hand, if I don't forgive and I hold on to this hurt... 
Is that not actually equally destructive for the person who perhaps is asking for forgiveness and also in the end for me in withholding it? Maybe today we're conscious of deep wounds from the past or the present. And even if we're not in a fallen world, this is something that we will have to consider at some point. Now, we saw before that chapters 39 to 41 in Genesis are a first trilogy, a three-part thriller in the life of Joseph, centered around this time in prison, what took him there, what it was like when he was there, what brought him out. And the focus was on how God was at work and using these experiences, even though they didn't make huge sense at the time that he was going through these things. And now we start another trilogy, a three-part series of visits from Canaan by Joseph's family as they come to Egypt for food during this famine which has affected the whole land, but not Egypt, where Joseph, through his wisdom, has managed to store up grain to feed not just Egypt but the rest of the, of the known world at that point. And the focus now switches to the relationship between Joseph and his family. So the question in these chapters is, what's going to happen with this relationship? Can the relationship be restored? Is reconciliation possible? What does it take to forgive? Chapter 42 is just the beginning of that process. We're going to see the beginnings here of what it takes to forgive, and there's more to come. So first in this chapter, we see a decision to show mercy, a decision to show mercy. Jacob is sending his sons once again, off you go to Egypt, but but not Benjamin this time. He's still grieving for Joseph, and he's still playing favourites. Remember, Jacob, this is one of the things he does. And Benjamin is the... If Joseph was the first son of his favourite wife, Rachel, Benjamin is the second and only other son of his favourite wife, Rachel. So he's not going to risk the second son of his favourite wife. But the other ten sons head to Egypt where they've heard this grain because this mysterious figure has risen from nowhere to be Pharaoh's number two. And now Egypt is the equivalent of that one last supermarket in March last year that still had toilet rolls. And everyone is heading there. And they arrive, and and what do they do? They come before Joseph. And look, verse 6, what happens? They bow down. Now, do you remember Joseph's dreams in, in chapter 37? What was the dream? It was that his family would come and bow down to him. So here they are. It's happening. Though not quite fully, because they're not all there, but it's beginning. But immediately we see Joseph's 13 years in the wilderness, as it were, have made him a very different man from the teenager back in chapter 37 who boasted and teased his brothers. There's no glee here as the dreams come true. And neither, actually, though, is there straightforward revenge. There's a play on words um, for for recognising and seeing in verses 7 and 8, if you look at that. that The point is that they'd failed to recognise him as a brother in chapter 37 when they left him in the pit and they sold him to the traders. And now these same brothers fail to recognise him again, do you see? They hadn't recognised he was their brother, because you don't treat a brother like that, do you? Don't put a brother in the pit and leave him for dead. And now they don't recognise him again. And Joseph has a very clear option to give them what they deserve. He wants to do that. He is Pharaoh's number two. He can do whatever he likes. And all he has to do is issue the order. 
You know, all these other people are queuing up for food. Yes, yes, they can have food. Oh, no, but this family, no, sorry, they can't have any. If he wants to do that, he can certainly say that. This family who left him for dead and sold him for slavery, he could send them to get their punishment and go home and starve. Wouldn't that seem tempting at this point, given that all he's, he's gone through? Now, we'll come in a moment to why he treats them as he does, but we need to see this first of all. You see, forgiveness begins with a decision not to treat people as they deserve, a decision to show mercy. Another uh, survivor of the Holocaust, Corrie ten Boom, described uh, meeting a concentration camp guard years later who uh, at this meeting, as they, they, they met after the, long after the war, he thrust his hand out to her and said, I know what I've done was wrong, so awfully wrong, but since that time I've become a Christian. And I know God has forgiven me for what I did, will you forgive me too? And Corrie ten Boom wrote this, she said, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the heart's temperature. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And she goes on to tell of how it was only then, once she decided to show mercy, that she felt the warmth of God's love as she showed that love to the man who caused such suffering to her and her family and so many others. It begins, you see, with a decision not to seek revenge, not to hold the sin or crime against them, but to show mercy. But with Joseph then, why then does he now put his brothers through all these tests that we see in chapter 42? And, you know, accuse them of being spies and things. What is going on with that? Well, that's the second thing about what it takes to forgive that we need to see here. Second thing is a commitment to change. A commitment to change. Forgiveness begins with an act of the will to forgive, but it doesn't end there. That's not the end of forgiving. It's just the beginning. See, the goal of forgiveness is always reconciliation, finding restored relationship with the person who's hurt us. So in order for that to happen, Joseph needs to know if his brothers have changed in the intervening years. Otherwise, his forgiveness of them is going to remain one-sided, unilateral. There'll be no reconciliation or restored relationship if they've not changed. But here's the problem, you see. Think about it. He can't just come straight out and say, hey, look, guys, it's me. It's the guy you left for dead and sold into slavery, and now look where I am. I'm Pharaoh's number two. Because there's a kind of obvious mismatch, massive mismatch of power, if you think about it, in this relationship now. Because what would happen if he tells them who he is, what are they going to do? Well, if their goal, what's their goal here? Their goal is to get grain to take home to dad, isn't it? So what do they have to do? Well, okay, all we've got to do is sincerely apologise and uh, then we can be on our way. Now, words of apology, of course, are extremely important. But we know in all our relationships, words in themselves, particularly in the context of grave sin like this, words themselves are not enough, are they, by themselves? We need to know that the one apologising is genuinely committed to change and potentially 
that there is clear evidence of that in their behavior. So actually, if you look, that's exactly what Joseph's plan and his questions and the things that he puts them through is designed to reveal. So first, he provokes them with a false accusation. You're spies. How are they going to defend themselves? It'll be interesting to see what they say when faced with this. How will they defend themselves? Well, what comes out sounds promising, doesn't it? They include the details of the brothers who, who aren't with them, including one who is no more, i.e. Joseph, who they're talking to. They think he's dead because they left him for dead. This sounds honest, doesn't it, as it's more than they need to say. So send for the youngest brother, says Joseph, verse 15. Well, why say that? Well, because one question is whether what's actually happened is that they have abused Benjamin as they abused him, and that's why Benjamin's not come with them. So they need to know, don't they? Well, he, sorry, well, he needs to know, what have you done with, my, with that other brother? Next, he puts them in prison. And there's a sense in which, he, you know, they need to understand the pain of what Joseph has gone through. But it's not years, it's three days before a further opportunity for mercy. Because if they just send one brother home, as, as Joseph initially suggests, that brother will never take enough food to, to feed uh, Jacob and everyone else at home. Uh, so, they, so he says, okay, send all the brothers back with loads of food, but just leave one behind. Now again, why leave one behind? Well, because Joseph again needs to know if they will simply abandon Simeon in Egypt as they abandoned him to the, Egyptian, to, to the, to the slave traders, the Midianite slave traders. They're going to abandon him. Have they changed, in other words, is the question. And then there's this silver that they, bought to, to, they brought to buy the grain, and that's mysteriously returned to their sacks. And again, the question is, well, if they abandoned Joseph for silver, that's what they did, isn't it? They sold Joseph for silver. Will they abandon Simeon now? They think, oh, look, we've got food and the money, so we can just go home and leave Simeon here. We know we've done that before with another brother. Let's, let's do it with Simeon. So he's making it so that the only thing now that's going to bring them back to Egypt is to get their brother back that they know they've left there. Because they've got all the money, they've got everything they came for, they've got the food. The only thing now that will bring them back is to save their brother. So do you see, the, these events are designed to test for this commitment to change among the brothers because if they really change there is the possibility of restored relationship which always needs to be the goal when we're thinking about forgiveness see it needs to start with a commitment to forgive it, it can't be dependent on the other person being willing to change that's important to say because we, we've seen here haven't we that joseph was willing to show mercy before he looked for evidence of change but this is about recognising that the commitment to forgive is only the beginning of that process. It takes time, it takes pain. So verse 21, the brothers needed to realise the pain they had caused. As they, uh, they, they reflect on how they're, perhaps they're being punished because of their brother, i.e. Joseph. And they needed to own that. The brothers needed to own that. They needed to feel the guilt of that, as Reuben then does in verse 22. You know, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They're beginning to realize, actually, maybe, maybe this is happening because, in some way, because of what we did to our brother Joseph. And maybe that's a problem. There's, a, there's an issue here. We need to face up to that. We're going to have to pay. There's a cost to that. 
And the result of all that then in verse 24 is that Joseph then turns away and weeps. See that there's pain for the brothers in this situation, but there's pain for Joseph as well as he confronts what has happened to him. Actually, we know, don't we? If we know about real-life situations, this is, this is exactly how life is. It's no surprise that we very often think a simpler solution is just to shove everything under the carpet and cover up, isn't it? And there is wisdom in doing that on you know, more minor issues where the, the debt, as it were, that's being forgiven is relatively small. And I think the Bible is very clear that that is a wise way forwards. But in cases where there's been a serious breach of trust or physical or emotional wounding, like abuse or maybe adultery or some other serious relational rift, forgiveness, as we're seeing here, forgiveness doesn't just mean pretending nothing has happened and that there are no consequences. And you see... Being willing to acknowledge that, both as the the perpetrator of those things, but also the victim of those things, being willing to acknowledge that and say, no, there is actually an issue here and it needs to be forgiven, that is painful. And it will always be easier just to sweep things under the carpet, but that is not going to help. Very often the person offended doesn't want to go there with with with, with the offender and put them through that pain either. And so nothing is said And the upshot is that nothing is sorted. And while there may be superficial talk of forgiveness, the relationship then becomes distant, maybe even permanently. But you see here, for Joseph's brothers, this initial kind of hump that they have to get over of acknowledging the pain, feeling the pain on the one hand of uh, of Joseph then feeling the pain, that is, and, and the guilt that then goes with that for the brothers, that is the first step towards reconciliation for them now of course we need to say as well we can sometimes take this too far and if you're not careful the need for change or repentance can be weaponized by the person who's been hurt and then it becomes well nothing will ever be good enough and whatever the person who hurt them does it will never do and this remains an issue that is brought up in every argument forevermore But you see here, Joseph is looking for the evidence of change, but the goal is to forgive and move on. And very much so, as we go through the rest of the story, we'll see that that's how it works. This this doesn't become a permanent state of affairs. He's constantly saying, have you changed, have you changed, have you changed? No, he, he says, there's evidence of change, ready to forgive. That's the commitment to change. But thirdly, and most importantly, we need to see that in order to forgive, we need a God who forgives. A God who forgives. In many ways, the key point in this chapter is when the brothers turn to one another in verse 28, if you look, after they've discovered the silver in their sacks, and what do they say? They say, what is this that God has done to us? Finally, an acknowledgement from them that there is more to their world and their lives than their own actions. And if we've been following the story of Joseph up to now, we we, we know the answer to that question. What what is this that God has done to them? Well, Well, God has been working for good in all their circumstances. We've seen that very clearly each time. That is what he's been up to. In fact, long before they came to realize the wrong that they'd done, 
God was already at work, wasn't he? He was already, he'd taken the initiative. He was already ensuring that their brother whom they had rejected was in the right place at the right time to give them food. That started right back in chapter 37. So there he's in the right place at the right time to give them food and more importantly to see the relationship in their family restored. Where's the initiative for all this come from? It comes from God. Not from them, first of all. And the way that God treats those who have rejected him sets the model for the way that we treat others when they hurt us. See, God neither, if you think about it, he neither just gives us what we deserve for rejecting him, the judgment and the wrath and the punishment we deserve from him for eternity, that is what we deserve. But if we trust him, that's not what he's going to give us. But on the other hand, neither does he sweep everything under the carpet and pretend it hasn't happened. No, there is a cost to forgiving. And when it comes to God, that cost was borne by Jesus at the cross as Jesus took the judgment that we deserve for rejecting the God who made us. And he absorbed that on himself and his own shoulders at the cross. The cost was born. See, this is what we need to focus on before we ever consider what it means to forgive others in our lives, isn't it? And if this is something we've not yet understood for ourselves, we need to understand this. Before we can ever think about forgiving others, think of what it means for God to have forgiven us. Because how can we ever possibly forgive those who have deeply wounded us? Well, only when we realise how even more deeply we have wounded and rejected the God who made us. And yet he forgives us when we trust in Jesus. And then he says to us, as those who have been forgiven, now you go and forgive. And we remember that in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Amongst other places. What does that mean then for us, to forgive as we have been forgiven by God? Well, not merely just saying, I forgive you, and then moving on. We've seen, haven't we, in this chapter, that's not what forgiveness looks like. We sometimes hear stories of Christians who have been gravely sinned against, and then they very quickly and publicly forgive those who have hurt them. Now, these stories are worth listening to and thinking about very carefully. One amazing example is... Uh, Robin Oak, who was a former chief constable of the Isle of Man, and his son, Stephen Oak, was murdered by a terrorist nearly 20 years ago while serving as a police officer himself. And they, 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 they brought Robin Oak as a former police officer, a, a, a chief constable into a press conference just on the same day that his son had been murdered by this terrorist. And right at the end of the press conference, after sort of going through the details of what happened, a journalist stuck up his hand and said, have you got any words for your son's killer? And Robin Oak, as a Christian, said, yes, I forgive him. And that kind of went around the world, headlines at the time, and it is, it's truly amazing, isn't it, that he felt able to say that even at that point. But I wonder if sometimes there's a danger that we hear that and we think, first of all, I'm not sure if I could do that right at that point when it's so raw 
And actually, secondly, more, even more importantly, we also hear the story, but we don't then hear how for Robin Oak that was the beginning and not the end of the journey for him and his family. Of course it was. And in fact, he's written a book about it and he's given many talks to speak about that. So those stories of the, of, the, of the people who are quick to forgive are important to hear, and we must think, what is it that would motivate someone to do that? It's only because they know they've been forgiven by God that they can possibly say those words. But we must also know for ourselves, as we consider our own response in these situations, it's just the start of the process. Not a one-off event that makes everything go away and makes us able to say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. No, of course it matters. There's a massive cost to forgiving. And this is the beginning, if you, as, we, as we forgive, it's the beginning of a daily decision not to hold the sin against the killer in those circumstances, knowing that that is how God has treated us. Now, my understanding is that that terrorist has never made any attempts to make things right with the Oak family. You know, he's serving his time in prison, no contact. And in that sense, reconciliation remains a very far-off possibility. And that will be the same in many situations where this sort of thing has gone on. And, and from a human point of view, it just seems unachievable to, to get to that point of reconciliation. But Robin Oak has written of how he was only able to start on that journey because of how God has treated him to, by sending his son to die for him. And as, as we see the beginning of the process of forgiveness and reconciliation for Joseph, we're pointed to that forgiveness of God of us which doesn't depend on us making the first move. It doesn't depend on us proving that we've changed. But it rather provokes that in us once we have received it. So we've seen, haven't we, forgiveness takes an act of the will. Forgiveness involves change. But when it comes to receiving the forgiveness God has given to us, he initiates it. He has initiated it. He offers that forgiveness to any of us to reach out and receive, and then to see the fruit of that flowing out into our lives. The cost has been paid. Like Joseph, Jesus wept in the Garden of Gethsemane as he considered that cost. But it has been paid. And now we can now show that same forgiveness to others. Now, this chapter, chapter 42, ends without resolving everything. That's going to take a bit longer. And in particular, we see things held up and made more complicated, once again, not by Joseph and not by his brothers, but by Jacob. Because the chapter ends with Jacob kind of still making everything about him and kind of unwisely prioritizing one of his children over the others. And it's kind of like, Jacob, really, this doesn't work. You need to understand that. But he's still uh, doing that. And it's, it's a reminder that sometimes the full fruits of forgiveness remain actually beyond our reach for a considerable time, or even forever, for reasons totally out of our control. But this, however, is only the beginning of the story of Joseph's forgiving of his family. It's not over for him yet. And as we consider the brokenness of our world and our own relationships and pains caused by others and things that we need to forgive and to go on forgiving, until Jesus returns or God takes us home, it's not over for us yet either. Amen.